Hey everyone, George here. Uh, real quick, um, towards the middle and the end of this episode, there are some weird background noises that occur. Uh, you're not going crazy. You're actually hearing them. We could not isolate them in post and fix that. So just want to say a quick apology for that. Other than that, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. This, to me, has got to piss off Esau even more, not because he's going to serve his brother. See, this blessing just puts him right back into hyper-masculinity again. It takes him away from the fatness of the land where he loved to be, where he felt at most at home and at peace, and it says he's going to live by the sword. Hello and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, historical and cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other somewhat sick and maybe possibly contagious co-host, Don Shiver. And it's a good thing we record over the internet. Well, I, yes, I have nothing. My wit is gone. Okay, well, this should be an interesting episode then. Um, so, Don, what do we mean when we say that we're their weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context? Well, biblical literacy is the idea that we, we know the fullness of Scripture as opposed to just portions of it that serve our needs. Uh, discipleship is the idea of aligning our belief so that what we believe with what we behave and how we live. And then cultural context uh, is important because it's it's good to try and recognize or wrestle with what the first listeners would have heard. Yeah. So what we try and do here on Evangel Bros is give you new tools and insight to read text that you may have read or heard hundreds of times and hopefully breathe new life into it. You don't want me to breathe anything on you to, today, though. No, I do not. You are correct. Um, and so right now what we're doing is we're continuing our series of walking through the Torah portions. Um, part of the reason why, and we haven't covered why we're doing this uh, in a few episodes, but um, it's important, and Don and I want to talk through this um, while you guys listen, uh, because this sets up our relationship or our interactions with God. Um, you know, we talk through the first couple chapters a couple of weeks ago, and it really, you know, once you move from the idea of a punitive God to a God that addresses trauma, it changes how you read the text and how you interact with God and how it sets up how Israel interacts with God and paves the way for, for Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, and so we're continuing that this week um, with uh, the sixth Torah portion, Genesis 25, 19 through 20, or Genesis 28, 6. And what do we find in this one, Don? Well, this is, a lot of people are familiar with this section. You know, we have the, the birth of Esau and Jacob. Um, we have the stealing of the birthrights and the blessing of Jacob from uh, Esau. 
and Jacob fleeing. So this is a really, I would say that this is one of the ones where maybe people aren't familiar with like the details of this, but they have some knowledge of like the wrestling in the womb and, you know, a bowl of soup for the birthright uh, and Jacob's uh, dressing up in a hairy outfit to fool Isaac uh, into thinking he's Esau. And Rebecca's encouragement of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, And I think, I think that's probably at least, you know, maybe I'm not being fair to our listeners, but you know, I think for most people, that's kind of where the depth of their knowledge of the text ends. And I think that for many people, they feel like, well, that's all we need to know. Yeah. Um, I definitely remember feeling that way. And uh, honestly, I think this this past week, getting into this, I checked out that um, Alpha Beta website that you brought up last week. And everybody, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it or check it out, please do that. Um, it is such a wealth of information and it just provides great insight to the text. Um, so I, w- I checked that out this week and I was just continuing to read it. And there's just so much meat in this te- in, in this portion that I had never picked up on before Absolutely. or had spent any time sitting and thinking about. Yeah, I'd love to hear more of what, what you engaged this week. Um, well, I guess uh, let's just jump on into it. So I, I know that you said that you want to spend some time talking about uh, Isaac and the Wells, um, and I think that that's a good place. But I want to start um, with Rebecca appealing to God about the pregnancy. Yeah. Um, I never put it together that, I mean, I knew that God talked to Rebecca and, you know, God also talks to Isaac, but I don't think I ever put it together until this week that Rebecca probably never told Isaac about um, the younger brother serving the older brother, which changed the way that I read uh, the, the blessing that Isaac uh, gave to Jacob instead of Esau. How does that change it for you? Well, so I started thinking about it and, you know, Rebecca knows that Jacob will be master over Esau since before the birth happens. Um, and whether or not she tells Isaac that we don't know, we know that, uh, Esau is Isaac's favorite because he enjoyed the game that Isaac, um, you know, caught, but outside of that, he doesn't really speak for preference on the two. And so like when, Isaac tells Esau, hey, go find me some game and make me some food that I really like. And Rebecca catches that. She dresses Isaac up as Esau and they go in and the blessing is given. And, you know, we can dive into more of this if if we get to this. Um, But the Isaac or the blessing that Isaac gives to Esau, you know, Jacob, sounds like it's restoring his birthright. Hmm. You will ser- you will serve over your brothers. I see. Um, and so, I mean, I think that you know, one of the things that just kind of stands out to me in that is, you know, Rebecca is still keeping in what the you know the prophecy that God gave her, but also you know it would explain the wailing or Esau's reaction a little bit more. Now, after giving it away, he understands what he's lost, you know, because he doesn't really care about it. It seemingly doesn't care about it to begin with. But also, you know, this idea that there was this blessing and, you know, Isaac didn't have anything reserved for Jacob. Interesting. 
Yeah. So, so what do you think about Esau, right? Like, how do you read the character of Esau in this? When, when you engage this passage, like, how would you define the type of person that Esau is? Um, I think I used to take him for granted. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, you know, you know, I, when I was in high school and growing up, I was never like a Jack or anything. I probably related more to, to the Jacob character. And so, you know, Esau for me was this meathead who never appreciated what he had. And, um, because, you know, he tricked himself into giving up his birthright. You know, he was angry for no reason. And so like, and so with, when I read the blessing passage, you know, originally it was like this idea of this last chance to receive something from his dying father that Jacob stole. And I think part of that is, you know, the, look, anti-Semitism is right in the Western church, whether we realize it or not. We have a movement that was founded on something that Martin Luther did who, you know, Martin Luther, I think he was right in saying some things need to change, but he was also a horrible anti-Semitic. And a lot of people use this Jacob and Esau passage to justify horrible actions or to try and justify horrible actions and horrible stances on something. When in reality, that's not the, if you read the text, it's not there. And I think that that original um, framing that most of us learn, but aren't don't actually realize what we're learning. And I don't think that, you know, pastors or teachers intentionally do that. I think it's just one of those sure. things that has set through time and we just assume that that's the case. So, you know, I always kind of viewed Esau as this meathead who was screwed over. But, you know, this week rereading it and getting into some of the background it really just changed. Like I, I felt pity for Esau, but in a different way. Yeah. So when you, so I think there's a, one of my favorite questions to ask the text is like, what is the goal of the narrator or the author? Right. So does, is the author completely objective in their description of Esau or is this the way Isaac sees Esau? Uh, and so it's being written through the eyes of Isaac as opposed to who Esau really is. Like, because I think that that begins to change things. Like what, what do you think the goal of the author is in this or the narrator? Are, are they being objective? Is it just their observation or what, what do you think is going on? Oh, that's a great question. And definitely one I did not ask when I was reading. Um, I don't, well, the, I don't the reason know. I asked that, let me, let me clarify maybe a little point here, uh, is that like, so the narrator portrays Esau as like hungry for the kill uh, and all of that, right? And with the taste of, of game in his mouth, right? Um, yet sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? So it sounds like the thing he created, he just was out hunting, right? So like, unless he came back empty handed, like wh why does he want lentil soup? If he's got, you know, game in his mouth, like this is strange to me. It seems counter to the way that he's narrated. 
So that's why I'm asking the question. Like, it doesn't seem to be who Esau is. So is this an objective narrator or is this a narrator that is talking on behalf of Isaac's view or understanding? Oh, man. I'm not entirely sure. I think that, you know, I may be playing into Isaac's hand just because you feel sympathy for Esau throughout this entire, at least I, I felt sympathy for Esau throughout this entire thing. Oh, I feel sympathy for him too. In fact, I think that's what made me think of that question was you mentioning sympathy because what is it in 25, 28, it says Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Yeah, no other reason. And so Esau, like, what if, what if Esau didn't want to be a hunter? Like, but the reason, only reason dad loved him was because he provided him with game. Yeah. Right. Like that to me, that verse is such a, is such a, a gut wrencher, right? Like he loved him because he basically, because he brought him wild game and, you know, there's part of me that wonders if Esau resents being the firstborn. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if you jump down to the last sentence in uh, chapter 25, so Esau, so Esau despised his birthright, you know, I think in the past I've read that as, um, you know, he was upset with himself because he sold it to, to Jacob, but, that context makes more sense. You know, right. why would you wouldn't despise something after you gave it away unless you didn't want it to begin with. Right. So there's, so listen to this. So it says the early sages believed that the Torah was perfectly concise, containing no unnecessary information. Verse 29, however, employs seemingly unnecessary information. And Jacob made a bracketed lentil stew and Esau came in from the field, and he was tired. The text could more easily have given us all this information by saying, and Esau came in tired from the field. Uh, the tradition of the rabbis encourages us to find meaning behind the fact that the text sets off the phrase, and he was tired. Tired of what? Right, is the question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Right, because why didn't it just say, he was tired, so he came in from the field? Instead, it says he came in from the field and he was tired, as if they're two separate things. Well, yeah, and it also doesn't specify whether or not he was hunting. I mean, you can make that assumption just because they said that he was a skillful hunter before that, but to come in from the field tired. And if, we're, if we are to imagine that Esau was as skilled of a hunter, then he probably would not have come back empty-handed. Yes. So some read 2532 as where it says Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And they read it as if I keep this birthright, I am going to die anyway. So why should I even have it? Like that it was too much for him. Like he couldn't live up to dad's expectations. Like, you know, when it's like dad, dad had the loved Esau because of the game. It's kind of like the child who, mom or dad's proud of them because you know they're going to medical school and the whole while they just want to be a uh you know 
uh, a street performer playing guitar on the corner for nickels and dimes, right? Yeah. And they're slowly dying. And we make, we make it out to be Esau's a moron for selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. And I think that, you know, it would stand to reason at a time when, you know, the, this is, bef- this is the first like real subversion that we get of, uh, not first subversion, but like, this is one of the best examples of subversion in the text of what the cultural norms were versus what, uh, the covenant of God was setting up. And so, you know, I think it would stand the reason since we can make the assumption that Rebecca didn't say anything to Isaac about the younger brother, the younger brother, Jacob being Lord over Esau, that, you know, there were comments about this. There were, there were issues around this, which is why, you know, I choose to read the blessing that Jacob or that Jacob received that was supposed to be Esau's is the restoration of the birthright and why there was no second blessing for Jacob. Because if your father's in your deathbed and you're giving a blessing, you, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, think about, I also think about like Esau is upset too with the blessing then because like he's dealing with the real pain that is his loss of the affection of his father, like how easily he was replaced. Like, like his dad didn't know him that well. I mean, come on, which of us, when we read this story go, I would be fooled by someone dressing up in furry clothing and talking funny. And I'd be convinced it was the other, the other child. Like which of us doesn't know someone that we know so intimately well enough to know that, no, you're wearing sheep wool. That is not your brother's arm. Right. And, and Esau like to be replaced so easily that Isaac doesn't even recognize the food. Isaac doesn't recognize him. Isaac doesn't recognize his voice. Uh, and that he's so easily replaced is yeah. shocking. I mean, especially somebody who loved eating the game that his child brought, you'd think that Isaac would recognize a goat. Like a right. goat, goat meat is tough. Yep. Like it's not a pleasant meal. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say that it's not a pleasant meal because I prefer something else, but you, I imagine you would notice the difference between that and whatever game that would have been brought in. Right. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but Esau's words in, in 34 to me are just kind in 2734 are just really, really haunting where it says, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me even also my, oh, my father. Like, I don't think that it was that he felt that, I wonder, how about that? I wonder if it was more so that he just wanted to be blessed, right? And that, you know, Esau is realizing that his blessing was only tied up in being the firstborn that served the expectations of his father. And that when he finally broke away from the expectations of his father, there was no blessing left for him. 
And, you know, not to turn this all into practical stuff, but George, I mean, which one of us haven't felt something like that when we all of a sudden realize that, you know, the thing that someone loves us for is so easily replaceable by someone else and that what we perceive to be a deep and abiding love was actually kind of shallow and conditional all along. And like, and if you're really convinced it's something more meaningful, I can just imagine that exceedingly deep and bitter crying that Esau felt. Oh yeah. I mean, and it would totally justify his, you know, later on in the, towards the end of the chapter, the days, uh, of mourning my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Like who wouldn't want to lash out in anger against the person you were so easily replaced by? And this is even before he knows how bitter his parents are because of the women he married. And so like that, you just keep piling it on. It's gut punch after gut punch. Yep. Absolutely. Just, I mean, Esau is a punching bag and there remains a punching bag in Jewish tradition in a lot of ways. I'm not familiar. Yeah. I mean, Esau remains kind of this uh, negative character in a lot of uh, Jewish tradition, not all of Jewish tradition, but quite a bit of Jewish tradition. It's kind of like Judas in Christian tradition. Wow. Yeah. Like that he just is kind of like this angry a uh, bad person that sold his birthright, doesn't care about his faith, doesn't care about his religion, doesn't care about his God, right, type thing. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it is Judas-esque in the way that it's portrayed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I, I'd never heard that before. And that makes, that makes sense. I mean, and then, you know, talking about Jacob for a minute, it's not the thing that kills me is it's not like this is what Jacob asked for. This is what God had ordained. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine um, being told that I will, you know, I, cause I'm a, I have an older brother. Um, you know, I can't imagine being told at a young age that I'm going to rule over him in this type of context. And I will, you know, take that that's just it doesn't make any sense right and so you know you get jacob stuck between this rock and a hard place of knowing because i'm sure if he is rebecca's favorite rebecca told him from an early age so this is something that he is like growing up into that he will receive the birthright because he god said that he is going to be the the leader of 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 this covenant and so, you know, like the selling of the birthright, that's a natural thing that would come of that. Right. You know, I think we can look at this in kind of like a little bit of masculine expectations, right? That the way that Esau's described and the way that Jacob's described, in a lot of ways, they try to describe Jacob in effeminate type terms. You know, he's smooth skinned. He's... Uh, he loves he, spending time in tents. Right. And he, he cooks at home with mom. He's a mama's boy. And then uh, Esau is described in all these very masculine uh, terms of being, you know, both hairy and a hunter and a man of the outdoors type thing. Right. 
and so very macho esque. Yet, when when we see all this, it's Esau that has all the emotions. Esau cries bitterly. Jacob yeah. Jacob is conniving and deceiving. Uh, Jacob is extremely strong, right? We'll see that in a future uh, in a future uh, discussion. But like Esau is, you know, when when Jacob even returns to meet Esau, it's Esau that runs out to him and weeps on his neck and kisses him. And so here's Esau demonstrating all of these these emotions and stuff that belie the masculine description that he has, the machoism that he's described in. And Jacob is the opposite, who is described in these terms that would seem rather effeminate uh, or mama's boy-esque, right? And Jacob is breaking those norms. And so this story is just so fascinating in like they set us up, right? to see like and I don't think we spend the time enjoying the story enough to to see this right that here you have two brothers one of them is a mama's boy and one of them is a rough and rugged outdoorsman and the rough and rugged outdoorsman is seemingly upset with being the older brother and having the birthright and the expectation of the head male of the house and what goes into that and seems to be mad about this, right? And doesn't yeah. want it. And and then you have the other person who we would expect to be docile, who asks a way to help to take it. Um, it's so interesting. This whole story is interesting to me because it's, again, right after we meet Rebecca and she gender bends, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to our last episode. And now both of her sons are not fitting expectations of masculine stereotypes. It's so fascinating to me. Yeah. I don't think I picked up on the emotionless Jacob until now when you pointed that out. Completely emotionless. Doesn't even seem regret about screwing his brother over. Now, in all fairness, he may know that Esau hates being the firstborn. Well, and also, in all fairness, Rebecca may have told him by now that he, you know, if you're going to bleed, then it would make the assumption. I would make the assumption that a birthright would be involved in that. Look, and you're gonna have to bleep me on this, right? But I'm sorry, but you have to feel some emotion if your mom, even if it's your mom, says, "Hey, you need to leave," but you got to over your older brother, your twin who you are intimately connected with. He is your twin, right? And I don't have a twin, but I've talked to people who are twins and that connection between the two just is so strong. And I just think, man, there's not even like a sense, like like he's not even concerned. He's not even like, are you sure you want to do this, Esau? Yeah, you're right. Like it's just, man. This is a tough passage. I, I love it. I think it's I think it's immaculate storytelling. It's so interesting. I, I I think theatrically, it's so compelling. Like, why do we need to know the description of Esau as this burly, strong, powerful human? And why do we need this description of Jacob as being not that, right? Like 
it's so interesting. Like the way the story unfolds, the way that everything happens is so shocking and such a twist that if you're, if you're actually to make a decent religious film out of this, okay, so that's not possible. <laughs> no, but if but... you were, if, if someone had the ability to actually make a, a screenplay or something out of this, this picture is so intriguing and so I think even relevant to today's conversations around the gender spectrum and about uh, fragile masculinity and about expectations uh, of gender roles. Like there's so much in this section and also just about the, the pain of replacement, the pain of, of conditional love all of that in this story is just, it's rich. And man, like to me, this is a passage to just that if you just blast through it, because you know, like we listed off like that people feel like they know this, right? Like, okay, Rebecca talked to Is or Jacob, Jacob tricked uh, Esau, Jacob tricked Isaac, Isaac gives the birthright and the blessing and Esau's pissed. Okay. I know the story. Like, in all of this, it's it's so interesting. And and here's a piece to kind of foreshadow that I think is interesting. Isaac's eyes are weak, right? And in the next portion, I think it's the next portion, we are going to meet uh, Rachel and Leah. And that phrase is going to be used again. And it's so interesting. What a, what a fascinating moment, right? Yeah. Because we read it as Leah not being beautiful, right? That she was kind of dull or homely looking, but it says that she had weak eyes, right? And, and here is Isaac who has weak eyes. And what is that saying about Leah, if it's comparing Leah to Isaac, or what's it saying about Isaac if we're comparing him to Leah? Like it's so, man, oh, this is so good. I wish yeah. I wasn't sick. I know. But this, but this hot toddy is helping out a lot. Well, I'm glad. No, I, and you know, I'm glad that you brought that up. We'll talk about this next week. Um, but just the, you know, the fact that Jacob lives through the same um, trick that he pulled. I, I don't even know if I can say trick. Like, I feel so dirty like saying that he screwed Esau out of this stuff because he really like he didn't though. Like I I get the that Rebecca told him to to do this but like I I don't know. I I really struggle with with that with that language around this. Does that I don't Well, I mean his name implies like deception or something like that, right? So yeah. um he an, and he gets a new name later on, but still Sure. And, but I, I'm with you. I, I don't know that tricking is the right term because, you know, especially if we do begin to view Esau through this lens of, he didn't, he was, he was living a life to meet the expectation of dad instead of the life that he wanted to live. And, and because of that, he was, he was dying. Like it was killing him. Right, and if we read it through this compassionate lens, which rabbis have read it through, ancient rabbis have read it through, ancient sages, and that he just comes in, 
and he's just he's finally at his breaking point that when Esau or when Jacob says offers him the soup for the birthright, it's not about the soup. It's actually showing how much suffering he has had. He has just been suffering under this weight of expectation for so long that he was just looking for a reason to get rid of it, take it, take it off his back. Which is crazy when you have never read it as a moment of compassion before, but a moment of deception. Like right. you're in t- you've been like I've been told around this passage that you know Jacob is tricking Esau into this. No, that's not the case. Like I mean, sure you can if if you superficially read it like you know the text, then yes, it can be read like that. But I, it this is a moment of compassion. I'm convinced. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, this might be a stretch. I'm talking kind of off the cuff, but you know, we talked about that it was compassion of God to take Adam and Eve out of the garden. That in some ways, this could have been compassionate of Jacob to absolve Esau of the birthright. Right? I mean, we have the picture that in the womb they're wrestling; they're wrestling to become the owners of the birthright, and yeah. that. It seems that there wouldn't have needed to be any wrestling if Esau was meant to be the firstborn. But I get the picture. I get, I imagine that they wrestled because Jacob was supposed to be the firstborn and Esau thought that Esau wanted it. Now, I realize that that's putting a lot of thinking into the brains of an unborn child. Uh, so, But in the storytelling process of it, Right, Jacob was always meant to be the firstborn. Yeah, uh, but because of the wrestling in the womb, he's not. Uh, and Esau took something that he thought he wanted, and in reality, he actually didn't. Which is why I was my mind was uh, just ripped open um, when I read twenty seven this week, having you know looked at some other sources and just this idea of Rebecca listening to Isaac when he calls Esau in and that this blessing was meant to be a restoration of the birthright Mm. because Esau doesn't know that all he wants is a blessing from his father. Right. He has no idea what's been taken from him. Yeah. And then where is it that Esau does receive a blessing in this? Yeah. um, It is 30. It starts in 38. 39, uh, 27, 39. Right. Then Isaac, his father answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high by your sword, you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Listen, this to me has got to piss off Esau even more, not because he's going to serve his brother, See, this blessing just puts him right back into hypermasculinity again. It takes him away from the fatness of the land where he loved to be, where he felt at most at home and at peace. And it says he's going to live by the sword. And so it's interesting to me because the violence... Now, I get that hunting has violence, right? But the thing that's interesting to me or intriguing to me about this is that it really sounds to me as if... like. It's, yeah, it's, 
It's the last thing that Esau wants. Esau does not want to be taken from the thing that he loves and then put back into this place of violence. And, oh, this rips my heart out for Esau. And I just think about like all the people that can never live up to the expectations of their parents or family or friends and they just keep getting thrown back into the same space over and over again that just slowly kills them. Yeah, it's it, it is it's heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. And you know, I just can't believe that. You know, here's what I love about the text. Um you know, some people man I've had some friends that I've been talking with since the midterm elections came out or the results came out and uh, you know, in just like the last two years of how white evangelicals have cast their vote. And I'm not trying to get political in any of this. What I'm trying to say is I've had friends that don't understand why I still continue to align myself or try to align my belief and my behavior with the text and why I continue to um, be a part of West, Western Christianity. And like, these are the reasons right here. These are hyper progressive teachings from thousands of years ago that are still more than relevant today. And like, if this, if you feel no emotion during this, you might want to go see a cardiologist. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So um, do you want to hear something that'll, that'll put a wrinkle in your brain? Please. So, uh, there is a midrash about the description of Esau. Go on. So in 2527, you got that right there? Pulling it up now. Okay. I love that you're actually looking at a physical text, but you said pulling it up now as if you're looking on a digital device. What can I say? I'm a man of the 90s. Ha 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 ha. 2527. Yeah, I got it open. All right, where, read it for me. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was a quiet man staying in among the tents. All right, so in my version, uh, 2527 says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, right? And that phrase, a man of the field, Guess what the Midrash describes that as? A farmer? No. What? It describes it as, uh, so let me read for you from. Uh, Where are you pulling this out of, by the way? The Midrash. Okay. It's a Midrash on this section. Okay. So. It says Esau declared himself sexually available like a field. Israel said before the Holy Blessed One, Master of the universe, is it not enough that we have been enslaved to the 70 nations? Must we be enslaved even to this one who is penetrated like a woman? You can consider my brain officially wrinkled. And so... Some of the ancient sages read this as the description of Esau that he was gay. So if if indeed this is meant to describe Esau in a manner that 
that is identifying him as a queer man, it it really even more plays into this beautiful story then of how Esau was hiding who he really was in ordering in order to appease his parents, uh, appease his father, and you know. There's, I, and when I say beautiful, I mean that there's almost a coming out story to this, right? Where he finally breaks free. He gives up that that uh, disguise and you know buying into the birthright, buying into the expectations of of parents, and says, "I'm no longer going to conform to the identity that you think I should." It's so interesting to me. Yeah, and that really changes the reading of Isaac's blessing then. How so? Well, you said, so my translation was different than yours. Um, could you reread 2739 through, yeah, could you just reread 2739? Uh, 2739, yeah. This is Esau's blessing. Yeah. Uh, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Okay, never mind. For some reason, I thought that it had said, away from the field. Well, I, you know, when I started reading it, my mind immediately went there too. And I, I think that that's not a stretch to say, away from the fatness of the land, right? That like, you need to, uh, you know, be a celibate gay man. Uh, type thing. I, yeah, man. I mean, he he's already married to two Hittites at this point, and then after, um, you know, he hears Rebecca com- just be open with Isaac about the bitterness of this, even though she doesn't realize that Esau is listening, or maybe she does. Um, does he go and marry someone else to try and right. like please his parents again, 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 again? Ah. Uh. This is a free podcast, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish I had had an inkling of this type of progressiveness that the text. Like, and and here's the thing: is like th- this. This is all in the text. Granted, Dan, Don is talking about a midrash, um, which is still stuff that as you know, people who claim Christianity as their worldview, this is the stuff we need to read because how else can we know what relationship of God looks like without knowing what came before Jesus? Yeah, I mean, and a lot of these midrashes pre-exist Jesus, right? When Jesus says, you have, uh, you have read, he's talking about scripture. And when he says, you have heard, he's talking about the oral traditions, right? So like, Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with oral traditions. He has a problem with oral traditions that override the biblical text, but he doesn't have a problem with oral traditions in general. And let's be honest, this podcast is now an oral tradition and every commentary you read is an oral tradition and every book you read that it by NT right, because we all, all know you hipsters are reading NT right, uh, that it's, it's all oral tradition. And every sermon you hear on Sunday is oral tradition. So we, when we get up tight 
about reading ancient Jewish oral tradition, we are not being really honest with ourselves with how much oral. Tra- Most people know more oral tradition about the Bible than they know the actual Bible. Yes. So that being said, we still have a little bit of time left. I do want to, I know you and I talked earlier just, in the week. Just go where you want to go because. Yeah. You know what? I would actually encourage people, if you want to hear an even better discussion about the wells, go to Aleph Beta again and yes. watch their video on the wells. It it absolutely will do better than anything that George and I could have come up with. That is a fact. Did you watch it? Oh, yeah, I watched it. Are you kidding me? I like I, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that it just leaves some... Um, uh, Eat on the bone? Yeah, but I, you know, because last week I was talking about how Isaac is just a wet blanket, pretty much. Like he's Mm. got nothing going on. And I wish that I had seen the video or at least read a little bit more before I had said that. Because, you know, like I'm, for me, it's been so long since I've read uh, the Torah through like this that it's like reading it again for the first time. Well, George, let's be honest. Most of our listeners probably have no idea there's even a story about Isaac and Wells in this section. Yeah. I'm, and why would you? Because everything, like this entire, I, I, I had forgotten about that, or maybe I didn't even actually know it, um, because this is the same passage that has the Jacob and Esau stuff, and that is right. what we care about. That's the eye candy, man. Yeah. Um, so real quick, uh, so this picks the the Wells story picks up um, kind of where we left off last week. Uh, Abraham has died. Uh, there's a famine in the land, and Isaac is on his way to Egypt. And Yahweh shows up and says, "Don't go to Egypt." Right. What I want you to do is sojourn in this area, which is uh, the land of the Philistines, um, Gerar, and just you know. Farm here, sojourn, dear thing. Isaac settles down and he uh, plants crops and is just rewarded 100 fold. And, you know, everybody starts to get jealous of what's going on because, you know, Isaac is getting wealthy. Yeah, the 100 fold makes him filthy, stinking rich. And hey, Jesus mentions the 100 fold in the Gospels. Do you know where? No. He says there's four types of fields. And so he says the good field will reap 100 fold. The four types of field are four, to- four types of soil. Four types of soil, sorry. Yeah, because we, we talked about this, um, man, early on uh, about right. the types of discipleship. Right, the types of people who are discipled. Yep, and yeah. what kind of field will you be? Yep, and that there'll be 100 fold. So yeah. here is... Isaac and the mention of the hundredfold. The thing that blew my mind about this was the fact that, you know, um, so, okay. So he's forced to leave where he had settled down at, and then he settles again in the valley of the same area. And then he tries to, he sends his servants to dig up the wells that Abraham had dug in that time. He does it twice and he is forced out of his place both times. And then he digs a third one and everything seems to go well. Hunky dory. Yeah. But why is that? 
Yep. And again, like Don said, go to the website. We'll, it'll be in the show notes again this week and probably every week from here out. Um, <laughs> well, can we put an actual direct link to that video? I think so. Yeah. Sweet. Let's do that because that video is so good. Uh, and, and I think it's buried because I think it's like a year or so old, a couple years old, maybe even. Okay. Yeah, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that. So look in the show notes for this, but it's just crazy because you get to see Isaac actually finally kind of take his place up with Abraham. And yeah. That. It's so good. And we don't ask the question that's so basic, which is what happens between the second well and the third well? Yeah. What's the difference between sojourning in a place and Isaac deciding to settle? Right. Yep. And one of my favorite things that that video points out. So I, I've looked at this well thing before and it's a wealth of, of stuff in there. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's the first mansplaining because Isaac's like, well, actually, uh, so, uh, anyhow, bad joke. I know that's okay. Keep going. But it's interesting because they say this is our water, right? Like you don't get to make a well, it's our water. That was so interesting to me. I never caught that their discrepancy, their, their anger, their frustration with him was it's our water that you're taking. That to me is so fascinating. Ah, man, I, I am so grateful for the ancient and even modern rabbinic and Jewish way of reading the text that is so interested in every word and phrase that everything is important. Kind of like we pointed out with Esau coming in and says he came in from the field and he was tired and they wrestled with that. We talked about in the Noah episode how the order of the relationships were listed differently at different times and how that impacted the way they read the text. Like, to me, that is so much gold in the text when you start doing that. And then you start finding other places in the text that use that exact wording and stuff. And it just, the whole text becomes this, look, I don't even care if you're religious or spiritual or not. When, if you were to start reading the text in this way, you are going to be blown away by the way that these people wrote this text over hundreds of years and the elaborate methodology of storytelling that was intertwined in it is so ridiculously good and powerful and interesting that just i mean there's a reason it's the number one selling book of all time right like regardless of what you feel about it this text is fabulous i wish people would learn how to actually do good screenplays from it yeah. I mean, we'd, we'd have 10 films, 10 separate films on the same passage and it would all be great. Instead, we got Kirk Cameron. Yeah. But I guess we got Nick Cage too. Look, if, <laughs> if Nick Cage is your, your backup plan to Kirk Cameron, I mean, it's saying that, it's saying that you probably don't have anything. And also, I would like someone else's uh, someone else's interpretation, other than uh, Tim LaHaye's, to be made into a film. Well, Mel Gibson's was. 
I would like someone other than an <laughs> anti-Semitic uh, to be uh, turned into a film. Agreed. So, all right, enough of my rant. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, th- just like this entire, um, this entire passage, and it's such a short part in the text too. Like, it, it, granted, it's like, you know, almost an entire chapter, but still, it's, we don't get much of Isaac. We get a lot of Jacob. We get a lot of Abraham. We get very little of Isaac. So this one story of Isaac and the well, and the yeah, and the well, and connecting it, man, it is like there are shades of Esau in it. And what I mean by that is, you know, I don't who would want to live up to the covenant after your dad tried to kill you? Yeah. Why would you? And it was his dad's covenant, not his. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh man, all nations are going to be blessed through me. That no pressure there, right? Go get them, kiddo. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, man, this is just. I'm just thinking, like, how would you know to love your son well when your own father tried to kill you? Because it doesn't. It does not matter what happened before that point. Like that is a schism in a relationship. Yeah. I don't, have I mentioned this to you before or on the podcast, but like I always picture Isaac, like the grandparents in Willy Wonka. No, that he's just laying in bed all the time. (laughs) Like, like that's totally how I picture Isaac. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see that. And, and Jacob walks in with the golden ticket, man. Right. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so funny to me because like Isaac, we just don't see him being active except for in the well section. Like, it's just, he's, yeah. Yeah. And, and what we see, absolutely. And what we see after that is Rebecca becomes the caretaker of the covenant. Yes. She becomes the head of the household. Similar to her. Honest, honestly, I think she was probably always the head of the household. Let's be fair. Oh, Yeah. So well, well, I mean, if she's described in the same way that Abraham was described, that would be an easy assumption. Right. I love that the servant from Abraham went to find a replacement for Abraham, not so much a wife for Isaac. Oh, oh. so good. We should study the text more often. I agree. Guess we'll just be doing it next week. We should like turn this into a religion or something. Oh, that's a great idea. I bet we can make a lot of money off of this. I got some dogmatic ideas that I could come up with in a hurry. I I definitely believe that. Well, I think we'll just leave it there for this week. Um, I mean, because that's a great place to stop. Dogmatism. Dogmatism. Absolutely. So if you haven't already, please head over to wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a rate and review. Five stars helps us reach a larger audience, which would be great because more people that... um, know about what we're doing hopefully we can save western christianity yes or maybe it'll save us hopefully but all joking aside it helps us reach a larger audience and you know that would just be great if you have any questions feel free to shoot us an email evangerbros at gmail.com we're on facebook twitter and instagram at evangerbros we don't really update our instagram that often but hey who knows we're we do not have faces to upgrade update instagram with yeah we definitely have faces for podcasting and today while i'm sick i don't even have a face for podcasting well you know but i have been your co-host george i have been your sick co-host don 
have a great week, everyone. See ya.